This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 36, numbers chapter 16 through 19. Chapter 16 starts with angry men who will not be slaves again. Their demand, too much is yours. Korach the Levite says to Moshe, Indeed, the entire community, the entirety of them, are holy, and in their midst is Adonai. Why then do you exalt yourself over the assembly of Adonai? Moshe falls on his face and tells Korach and the 250 machers from the desert Jewish community with him, In the morning God will make his will known. He goes on to tell Korach to get his Levite firepan and incense and come to the presence of Adonai, and then he lays in to the rebel Levites. So, being God's select support staff wasn't enough for you. Now you want the priesthood as well? So, who's trying to schnorr power now, huh? Moshet then calls out the other putative coup leaders, Datan and Aviram, who reject the summons and trot out that old canard about how Moshe led them out into the desert and where's the land of milk and honey and blah, 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 which really pisses Moshe off, who then tells God not to accept these folks' offerings under any circumstances. And then Moshe reiterates the challenge. Korach and his 250 rebel Levites, Moshe and Aharon, firepans, tent of appointment, bring it. So, all are assembled, and God manifests his presence and tells Moshe and Haron to stand aside, because... You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'ma get medieval on your ass. And in true form, Moshe and Haron beseech God not to annihilate everybody, so God tells Moshe and Haron to warn everybody to keep their distance from the insurgents because... I'ma get medieval on your ass. And as soon as Moshe delivers this warning, the earth opens its mouth and swallows Korach, Datan, and Aviram and all of their households. And for good measure, fire bursts out of the tent of appointment and burns up the 250 mutineering Levites too. Chapter 17 begins with Elazar, son of Aharon, collecting the firepans of the crispy Levites and using them to make a bronze overlay for the slaughter site. A decorative touch that is to serve as a reminder to the people. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time. But this has the opposite effect. The people are outraged and blame Moshe and Aharon for the crispy Levites, and God descends in a cloud to cover the tent of appointment and then tells Moshe, Any one of you lily-livered, bow-legged varmints care to slap leather with me? In case any of you get any ideas, you better know who you're dealing with. I'm the hootinest, tootinest, shootinest, bobtail wildcat in the West. So Moshe tells Aharon to run quickly and get some incense burning to appease God, but the plague breaks out nonetheless and begins to ravage the people. By the time Aharon gets his pans fired up, over 14,700 are dead, not including those that died in the earth swallowing and the fire burning. God then instructs Moshe to collect a staff from each of the tribe's leading clan leaders and to write the name of the staff's owner on it, 
And as for the Levites, Moshe was to write Aharon's name. Then he was to set the staffs in the tent of appointment. God will settle the leadership question once and for all by blooming one of the staffs, as in the winning staff will begin to sprout flowers, which should shut up all the grumbling once and for all. And the next morning, Moshe comes back to the tent of appointment and discovers that the staff with Aharon's name on it is in full bloom with ripe almonds. Good. Then we're all agreed. The chapter ends with a public display of the Almondy staff, which is installed in the tent of appointment as a warning to future insurrectionists who might overlook the fire pan overlay on the slaughter site or the curious absence of almost 15,000 people. This time, the deterrent has worked as the people are completely stricken with fear regarding the tent of dwelling as a Category 5 toxic site. Chapter 18 recounts the reinstallation of Aharon's family line amongst the Levites as God's elect and the re-election of the non-crispy Levites as attendants in charge of the tent of appointment, its implements, its amps, snow and board, double-neck bass guitars, and jars of M&Ms without the brown ones. Aharon is also vested with financial responsibilities to manage the contributions in all its forms and its distribution among the Kohanim and Levites, many of which we've discussed in the previous episode on the dwelling economy. Chapter 19 recounts the purification ritual involving the legendary red heifer. This red heifer is completely red. It has not one hair of any other color anywhere on its body. It is in perfect health and never been put to work. Once this heifer is ritually slaughtered and burned outside the camp, cedarwood, hyssop, and wool-dyed scarlet are added to the fire, and the remaining ashes are placed in a vessel containing pure water. This concoction is used to status change a person who has become Tameh by contact with a corpse. Water from the vessel is sprinkled on him by the Kohen using a bunch of hyssop on the third and seventh day of the person's Tum'ah. The Kohen who performs the ritual then becomes Tameh and must then bathe himself and his clothes. The Kohen is considered Tameh until evening. Anyone else involved in this process, the one who burns the heifer or the one who collects the cow's ashes, is also Tameh and must scrub his garments and remain Tameh until evening. This process applies not only to the person who comes into direct contact with the corpse, but someone who enters the tent where the corpse is kept, or comes across a corpse in an open field, or stumbles upon human remains or a cemetery, or to a vessel inside the tent that was uncovered, or the tent itself. In short, a sprinkle or two will do ya. There's a lot to talk about this week, so let's get to it. Gosh, there, there's so much going on in this week's portion. The Rebellion of Korach and the wacky ritual of the Red Heifer. Wow, it's such madness. This is Sparta! Although you might not know this, uh, we are in a period of ferment, an age of popular revolutions, of the Arab Spring and the J-14 protests in Israel, the Occupy movement in the United States, Idle No More in Canada, the protests in Turkey, Brazil, Thailand, Venezuela and the Euromaidan in Ukraine. People across the planet are organizing and taking to the streets to express their opposition to their government's policies on matters as wide-ranging as corruption and mismanagement, police brutality, protecting public green space, the rights of indigenous peoples, social and economic inequality, and the high cost of living. 
And in this week's portion, we have the first instance of a popular uprising against Moshe. As we have mentioned in previous episodes, there were other instances of public disapproval, of general grousing and kvetching from specific sectors of the Jewish people about material conditions. You know, where's the water? Why don't we have meat? But here, for the first time, there is a very public confrontation, a move from mere words into action, from sentiment to smackdown. The challenge to Moshe's leadership comes from Korach, a Levite, and two Rubes, or I guess Reuben, Reubenites, Reuben, Rubenians, Datan and Aviram, which galvanizes a whole bunch of folks to stand up as a group against Moshe. Harkening back to God's word in Exodus chapter 19, Korach declares that the whole nation is a special treasure, exalted by God. Therefore, how can Moshe and Aharon's monopoly be justified? For such a resolute leader, Moshe does an awful lot of hemming and hawing. In two earlier cases of the foul-mouthed blasphemer and the Shabbat woodchopper, he needs a quick huddle with God for instructions. Here, too, after being confronted by Korach and company, Moshe falls on his face. Now, falling on one's face, an idiom today that denotes bungling, but then, however, it didn't as much indicate a fail as, as, as one being overcome by emotion, such as, say, humility, respect, or embarrassment. Moshe could have gotten up, wiped the dust from his face and beard, and sent out the Levites to slaughter Korach and his cohort, as he did after the debacle with the golden calf. But that might have sparked a bloody civil war, as Moshe and Aharon are descendants of the Gershon clan in the tribe Levi, and Korach was from the clan Kehat. Instead, Moshe tells the folks challenging his hold on sacred authority that God will pick his spokesman, and then, as folks depart to prepare for the showdown, he chides Korach and the renegade Levites. Being roadies wasn't enough, and now you want to be the headliners, etc., etc. But at this point, one could pause and consider the sides of the struggle here. On the one side, you have Moshe and Aharon, two individuals who, selected by God, were subjected to much crap from the people, as well as from Pharaoh, but that comes with the job, I guess. On numerous occasions, Moshe put himself physically in between an angry God and his obstreperous people. As leaders go, Moshe and Aharon well demonstrated their commitment to the well-being of the people. Well, maybe more Moshe than Aharon. All right, I think he is. I'm your king. So, is there no merit to Korach's charge? We saw a similar incident, well, not that similar, but somewhat similar, earlier in Numbers, when Eldad and Medad grab Wi-Fi from an insecure network and begin to prophesize in the camp. Yoshua tells Moshe in effect that they are challenging Moshe's monopoly, uh, I mean, authority, and Moshe replies, quote, Oh, who would give that all the people of Adonai were prophets, that Adonai would put the rush of his spirit upon them. In other words, Moshe acknowledges that perhaps he has too much on his plate, and that it wouldn't hurt to let someone else have a go at prophecy. But is prophecy the same as leadership? And is what Moshe has been doing exalting himself over the people? Or is that what Korach thinks Moshe is doing? As for Korach, uh, this is the first mention of him as a political figure of any kind, and the same is true of Datan and Aviram, but despite being allies in this uprising, their interests are seemingly at odds with each other. Korach is calling for the people's religious leadership to better reflect the people. As a Levite, one cannot help but think that this call is motivated by a more personal agenda. Was he overlooked for a key position, and as a result the system which spurned him suddenly needs to be overhauled? But one wonders if this is what Datan and Aviram want as well. 
from their abuse of Moshe in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, perhaps not. They bitterly complain about being led out of a land of milk and honey with broken promises about another land of milk and honey. So are they mad at Moshe because they have not arrived in the promised land yet? Weren't they present for the whole spies debacle and the massacre of the presumptive who tried to seize the land too early? And wouldn't their criticism of the Levites snoring all the sacred leadership positions apply to Korach too? In short, this supposedly populist revolt is not all that populist. It's more astroturf than grassroots, with an agenda that's muddled at best and suspect at worst, which is not the best recipe for success. So when the earth opens up and the ground swallows up Korach, and his followers, and a plague sweeps through the people and kills thousands more, there is no reaction except terror, and the people do not conclude that perhaps Korach was right, and that as, a, as mercenary as his charge might have been, the reaction it evoked exposed the violent inherent in the system. Help! Help! I'm being repressed! Bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway! Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? Sometimes, however, exposing the violence inherent in the system yields different results. In considering Korach's failed attempt to unseat Moshe, I considered another attempt, one not directed at anyone in specific, it was more a statement of desperation and abject hopelessness, which ultimately brought down dictators in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and threatened still to topple the tyrants in Syria, Bahrain, and Yemen. I'm referring to Tarek Al-Tayeb Mohamed Bouazizi, a street vendor. Bouazizi was born in the provincial capital of Sidi Bouzid, where he worked in various jobs to help support his family. Though he did acquire some education, he quit school in his late teens in order to work full-time. After being rejected by the army and various other positions, Mohammed took to selling produce on the street. He earned approximately $140 a month. Mohammed, according to his friends and family, had long-standing issues with the local police, who would regularly confiscate his produce. On December 16, 2010, he borrowed $200 to buy the produce for the following day. On the morning of December 17th, he started his workday at 8 a.m. Less than two hours later, the police were on him, demanding to see his vendor's permit. Incidentally, according to the head of Sidi Bouzid's State Office for Employment and Independent Work, no permit is needed to sell from a cart. Mohammed did not have any money to bribe police officials. According to Mohammed's family, a female municipal official, Faida Hamdi, then slapped him in the face, spat at him, confiscated his electronic weighing scales, and tossed aside his produce cart. When Mohammed ran to the governor's office to complain about the physical abuse and to ask for his scales back, the governor refused to see or listen to him. At 11.30 a.m., less than an hour after the initial confrontation, Mohammed returned to the governor's office. While standing in the middle of traffic outside, he shouted, how do you expect me to make a living? And then he doused himself with gasoline and set himself on fire. His story spread on Facebook and Twitter. Protests began within hours in Sidi Bouzid. Over the next two weeks, while Mohammed lay in a coma, people took to the streets and localities across Tunisia and eventually in the capital city, Tunis. Mohammed Bouazizi died on January 4th, but within two weeks of his death, President bin Ali and his family were forced to flee Tunisia. And with that, the Arab Spring began to spread across the Middle East, toppling dictators and destabilizing autocratic regimes. One can read a semi-fictionalized account of Mohamed Bouazizi's story in the September 16, 2013 issue of The New Yorker, entitled By Fire, by the Moroccan writer Tahar Benjaloun. I'll link to the piece at The New Yorker, at thenextjew.com, and at the Facebook page. 
Now, many have pointed to Facebook as the catalyst for the Arab Spring, but I, along with others, have argued that it was actually the much reviled by the government's WikiLeaks that fueled the popular uprising. WikiLeaks exposed to the world what most Tunisians already knew. Their leader, Zin al-Ibedin bin Ali, and his family were corrupt kleptocrats and almost universally despised. Facebook and Twitter spread the word. So when Time magazine feted Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg as Person of the Year in 2010, Saturday Night Live's Bill Hader as WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange had some things to say about it. What are the differences between Mark Zuckerberg and me? Let's take a look. I give you private information on corporations for free, and I'm a villain. Mark Zuckerberg gives your private information to corporations for money, and he's Man of the Year. <laughs> I'll embed the whole clip at thenextjew.com. So, the red heifer. Talk about madness. This is Sparta! If you thought that reviving the Korban Pesach was a weird millenarian affectation, the effort on the part of Christian fundamentalists and Third Temple enthusiasts have already yielded fruit, or, or more like yielded cow. In March of 1997, Clyde Lott, a rancher and Pentecostal minister, brought five red Angus heifers to the Dixie National Junior Livestock Show in Jackson, Mississippi. Lott had been in contact with Rabbi Chaim Richman of the Third Temple Institute, who came to verify if Lott's heifers would qualify for the necessary sacrifice that would produce the ashes that could purify the Kohen, etc., etc. The full story is chronicled in a New Yorker piece by Lawrence Wright in the July 20th, 1998 issue entitled Forcing the End. I'll link to it at thenextjew.com and at the Facebook page. Suffice to say that Lot's heifers were not certified as truly red. This was surprisingly not the case with a young red heifer named Melody discovered in May of 1997 at Kfar Hasidim, a farming community in the northern north of Israel. Melody was certified as red sending shockwaves through sectors of the religious Zionist community, many of whom saw Melody's arrival as the harbinger for the arrival of the Mashiach. Similar sentiments could be found among many evangelical Christians who saw Melody as a necessary precursor for the end of days and the second coming of Christ. Then Haaretz editor David Landau called for Melody to be shot and every molecule destroyed. Quote, the potential harm from this heifer is far greater than the destructive properties of a regular terrorist bomb. Fortunately, it did not come to that, as Melody eventually grew a white tail. However, in its 2013 season premiere, South Park's Eric Cartman also discovered a red heifer. Actually, it was more like a ginger cow, which he hoped would produce freckled cheese. The fate of the world is at stake! The coming of a red heifer is the most holy sign in all of Judaism. It signals the beginning of the end. It is not just our religion, but Islam and Christianity as well. They all agree on one thing. That the red heifer means the end of times. But, like Melody, Cartman's cow was also not a real red heifer, even though it brought peace to the Middle East. Cartman's cow was merely a pathetic cry for attention which he then turned into a way to manipulate Kyle into eating his farts. I'll, I'll link to the fun at thenextjew.com and at the Facebook page. Leave it to South Park, though, to cram the Red Heifer, Interdenominational Harmony, Peace in the Middle East, Van Halen, and Fart Eating into one episode. Madness indeed. <laughs> Now 
as always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes Store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come on back and join us next week-ish for episode 37 on the Book of Numbers, chapters 20 through 23, with a very special guest and very special daughter, Ma'ayan Mendelssohn Aviv. Y'all come back now, here.